Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. Uh, This is another summer episode where we're just reading a book and having a devotional from Scripture, and we're happy you're here with us today. Today, Charlie is going to talk about a book that has to do with one of his favorite books of the Bible, Ecclesiastes, and Tim is going to give us a devotional thought from Genesis chapter 15. Uh, how are you guys doing today? Drinking coffee. I'm doing great. I'm enjoying I... coffee. I'm, I'm having some coffee. Charlie, have you drank any coffee this morning? Nope. Nope. So we, we were recording early in the morning. So my, my ritual in life is to wake up and go to porch light. And, uh, and so I will go directly after this to go get coffee at porch. Really? Well, I'm drinking some Ethiopian that Tim roasted me. And I just want the listeners to know how exquisite this Ethiopian is. It's maybe your, I think you had one better batch in the past, but this is like the best Ethiopian you've ever roasted to. you know i do my best every single time and sometimes it just turns out <laughs> better than other times and <laughs> well your coffee roaster bag. it sounds like your roaster's on its last leg too so our, it sounds like our days are no you know here. i got new replacement parts i got replacement parts and i need to f- fix it oh i thought this was like the oil from the widow of Zerapath. that just the the roaster kept working and we were <laughs> just happy about it <laughs> Oh no! And with that thought, I have, we have some. I mean, <laughs> go ahead, Tim. Books and business. No, no, no. That's my line. I'm the host. I was saying, go. You were finishing. Oh. With with that, we have some thinklings business to tend to. Books and business. Let's talk about a book, Charlie. It's this uh, podcast always suffers when you're not hosting, Charlie. This is, this this is, is always this what is happens. This is a fun thing. This is fun. <laughs> So what do you got for us, there, Charlie? I'm the, that, I'm the one that messes it up all the time. <laughs> we all play, roaster, our part. Roasting we himself. all play our part, Tim. <laughs> oh, Charlie, that was good. All right. So let's talk about a book. So the book is Joy at the End of the Tether, The Inscrutable Wisdom of Ecclesiastes by Doug Wilson. And Dougie. Uh, Good Dare old Dougie I say Wilson. this was written like before he was really famous? I guess I don't really know like where he hit his peak well, Doug Wilson-y, you know, era, but this was written in the 90s. Oh yeah, no, that's that's way pre super yeah. awesome Doug Wilson. That was maybe even before classical. Yeah. It was I, around I, the classical era, right? He was probably starting his classical movement then. I mean, it's, it's, he's, he's certainly more of a Christian figurehead now than he was in the nineties, mainly because social media and internet was just in its infancy. (laughs) And so, but anyway, so a few beginning caveats, whenever you pick up a book by Doug Wilson, so he intentionally tries to like shake you when you read something that he writes, he tries to be pretty bold. Would you guys agree with that assessment? Yes. In fact, he uh, has a book called Serrated Edge, the biblical, I don't know, it's basically sarcasm and snark from a biblical perspective. And he says, look at these prophets who are this way. And so, yeah, he's, he's, I, I think the way you described it is perfect, Charlie. 
he he tries to grab you in some way. <clears throat> he tries to 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 kind of ruffle your feathers. He's not trying to be gentle. Well, and, you know his 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 no quarter November is a perfect example. <laughs> the videos where he's burning everything down. <laughs> yeah, go go. I don't know if I want to recommend them to go watch any of his videos, but uh, yes, he's he's a very brash personality. <laughs> I think he's really trying to treat scoffers biblically. You're not trying to persuade a scoffer. You're trying to illustrate how they're wrong. And how do you do that? Well, with a serrated edge. So <laughs> I, I think it's it's right. The issue is determining whether or not you have a scoffer or you have somebody who's simple and you don't use the serrated edge on the simple individual. So I've seen a lot of people talk or use or appeal to his model, but then they don't use it appropriately and they're just mean to everybody. So that's... Yeah. <laughs> And so just to, just to, you know, I'm not, I'm not stating a, a moral, uh, quality, like that he's doing something wrong, just trying to get you a sense mm -hmm. of the, the, I, I, you know, a couple of weeks ago I went and, you know, I, we had a podcast episode was me getting off a plane, talking about interacting with some of the nine marks guys. And it does change how you read them if you meet them. And, and maybe that I, a quality of good writing might be that how they write is substantially different than who they are. And mm -hmm. I think that there are books like that where you'd read the book and you'd be like, wow, that guy wrote that. However, I think most people aren't exceptional writers in the sense that they can mask their personality. So it's kind of just giving you an idea of, of I think it helps you understand some of the things he does when you're like, oh, this is like a very in-your-face type of a dude. <laughs> um, and I think, that, to Tim's comment, I think, and sometimes in a very good way, in a very good way. Mm -hmm. So the second thing, kind of as a caveat to Doug Wilson, is theologically, he's very different than, than us. Uh, maybe very isn't the right way. Very is not a strong descriptor. But... We, we have some differences, especially in the realm of eschatology and when we start talking about God's kingdom and things like that. And so he, he always makes a very bold, brash, strong push to like do it, like do it now. And that fits into his theological positions. And so he's very, I would actually say he's very logically consistent with what he asks people to do based on what he believes some of his views are. Yes. So a lot of, I used to recommend a lot of Doug Wilson's book, I, books, I still do, like Future Men, uh, Even Exile, uh, You Who, these are great books and I still recommend them, but we're recommending them less just because we're seeing a lot of uh, people starting to adopt the false theology because they're not reading yeah. the discernment. Mm -hmm. So whenever you're picking up a Doug Wilson title, you know, you really need to read with a lot of discernment. This is also yes. why we need to be producing our own books uh, that reflect our own theological mm -hmm. positions. So then we don't have our listeners and even the people in our churches uh, deceived. So it's an important thing that Charlie's there highlighting. And I just wanted to really emphasize the differences are significant and important. Yeah. And so just because I, I am about to give a, I think a high review of this book, but that's where I wanted to start with some caveats of if you read him, he's going to be very in your face with theology. That's not what we agree with. So, 
Uh, but you know, a broken clock is right twice a day. And I think he has a lot of right things that he says and does, but theologically we're different. So anyway, Tim and I have on multiple occasions sat down and just translated through Ecclesiastes in classes in Faith Theological Seminary. And apparently I'm just a glutton for punishment because I went through the class for credit and then he taught it again like a year or two later and I was like, let's do it again. And I like, I was like, let's translate through this a second time. And what had happened in the the middle of those two classes is that I had begun pastoring and I had preached through the entire book. And so there's, there's a textual side of Ecclesiastes, but then it, it is difficult with some of these uh, passages and ideas. Like how do you sermonize? Like how do you, how do you pull an idea out of that? And so spent a lot of time in Ecclesiastes. And then it's like, you almost had so much of it. You had to take a break. And it's like, everything was Ecclesiastes, like everything, everything, everything. And it's like, okay, let's just take a pause there. Almost like if you, you know, if you're writing a book on Song of Solomon, maybe you just talk about Song of Solomon all the time and <laughs> it just becomes like everything you do. And maybe, you know, oh wait, no, maybe that's a little too close to home. Anyway, so sometimes you just need a friend to tell you, hey, you know what? Move on, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, that, that was like the best, like overt subtext to what we were doing here. <laughs> one one anyway. friend told me, one friend told me, it wasn't either of you. One friend, one friend said, you know, Tim, I think it's time to sing a new song. Ooh. Well, that was good. Time to sing a new song. <laughs> or it's time to sing louder. Um, you know anyway, what? I'm going to sing even louder. Oh, no. <laughs> I know what you're referencing. <laughs> Keep going, Charlie. Keep going. So what does Doug Wilson do in this book? I really appreciate that pretty much every chapter is just <laughs> here are the verses, read the verses, and then a couple of comments as we walk through the structure and ideas that Ecclesiastes presents. And I think he actually does a great job of focusing you on the text. He even has uh, one point where he tries to establish a textual or translation issue where he's like, this is how it's commonly translated. It probably should be translated this way. I disagree with him, but that's okay. He, he does what a lot of Old Testament theologians love to do. They look at a textual variant and they go, but look what the Septuagint says. And here's what we know about the Septuagint translation of the Ecclesiastes is it was probably one of the last things that would have gotten translated into Greek opposed to the Pentateuch that probably was issued in Alexandria. And so, and we know that there wasn't like an authoritative Septuagint translation. So to point to it as the authority over, for instance, the Masoretic text, I think is a little silly. That being said, I'm not an Old Testament scholar. I'll let Tim fight those battles for us. Anyway, I think he does a good job of focusing the reader on the text of Ecclesiastes. And how he breaks it down is he breaks it down into four sections. And so section one is, and I, I should probably just go to his own discussion on this. Uh, the first section is chapters one and two, which Tim, if you remember back to when we worked through it, we always kept that as a unit. We have textual basis for that. And it's yep. Solomon just trying to answer some questions about life. 
He agrees with us that it's Solomonic authorship. He gives, he says, there's no substantial reason to deny that Solomon wrote this, which is common as more modern commentators discuss Ecclesiastes. It's it's not written by Solomon. And he refutes that. So there's no good reason to deny that Solomon wrote this. This is Solomon later in his life reflecting on a lot of mistakes that he's made. And we would agree with him. And so that first division is where Solomon is trying to make sense of life under the sun apart from God. And he that's where he's going to get into that translation issue at the end of chapter two. It's one of the uh, nothing is better uh, passages in Ecclesiastes. He He likes a translation that says, you know, there's no good in man apart from God. It's like this really interesting way of translating it. The second big division is in chapter three uh, through five, where he then starts to answer the question, like, you know, why do we toil under the sun? This is all vain and uh, seemingly meaningless. And then the answer to that is the sovereignty of God. And he's going to insert the sovereignty of God as a means for our worship of him. And it's, I think, a very good connection between the early chapters of Ecclesiastes and the middle portion of Ecclesiastes. Then his third division is chapters 6 through the middle of chapter 8. And this is where he starts to apply, Solomon starts to apply his doctrine of God's sovereignty to practical issues in life. And then the fourth division, he uh, tries to look at typical obstacles, or I'll just read what Wilson says here. At last, Solomon turns, as all good teachers must, to remove various obstacles, discouragements, and to address practical concerns. So uh, it's, again, a very practical section in his mind of, of Ecclesiastes. So really, the first half is, why do we have toil? Why is life difficult? Why is life meaningly, uh, seemingly meaningless? And then he's like, well, it's not meaningless. It's the sovereignty of God. And then the rest of Ecclesiastes is, and here's how to apply the sovereignty of God. And so um, starting off, I, I would not agree with how he breaks down the book of Ecclesiastes. I think he does a fair job of walking through the text, but I think it's structured a little differently. And so there's, there's some terms in Ecclesiastes that you have to deal with. And uh, one of them, which he does deal with, is the term vanity, and that opens the book. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. And, well, what is vanity? And he has a discussion about this in his opening chapters, that this is not Solomon saying that life is meaningless. It's not just throwing away everything, like everything is dark and negative. He actually, Wilson commenting says, this is an optimistic book. And Tim and I, uh, that was something that as you read through a lot of commentaries, a lot of people are very negative when they read Ecclesiastes, like, oh, life is meaningless. Like if you polled people in your church, like what's the point of Ecclesiastes? Most of them would say, life is meaningless. Life is vain. And yes, our English Bibles have those words, but that is not the point Solomon is trying to make. He might have felt that way as he lived apart from God in, in Wilson's terminology. But uh, the, the overall view is, is that there is an anchor in, in what that's part of his uh, 
title is that we're tethered to something as a source of our joy. And even though life seems like vainly repetitious and there's no meaning, there actually is meaning when we understand the sovereignty of God behind it all. Hmm. Um, so I think he, he describes that vanity well, but he doesn't hit on a lot of other key ideas. For instance, the programmatic question of the first six chapters is, what profit is there for a man in his toil? What profit? What gain? And that term comes up a bunch of times. Wilson does not interact with that. And then there's this other idea of the portion that God gives you. God allows for you to have a very specific portion. It's what God designed sovereignly for you to have. And he doesn't necessarily deal with that term either. And so while I think he does some really nice things, thinking through the overall theological point Solomon is making about God's sovereignty, he doesn't get into the details enough in the first six chapters to really like, you know, pun intended, to really satisfy me. And, uh, so that, that's kind of my, my biggest kind of critique of it is he doesn't really get into the depth that, uh, the text demands. And to be fair, it's about a hundred pages. I was just going to so, ask what yeah, I was wondering, is it a yeah, popular? Okay. It is. It's, it's okay. meant to be, I think a popular flyover <clears throat> idea. And, and in that sense, I think he does that well. But he, you know, when he hits on the term vanity, which you know, I don't know off the top of my head, but I want to say it's used about, uh, I want to say sixty times in the in the book as a whole. No, is that too high? No, uh, it's yeah, it's too high. It's like an, it's thirty five ish somewhere in there. Okay, yeah, <laughs> well, it's, it's been nice too to long. Have an OT guy at the table. <laughs> it's been too long. Uh, but I'll it's have to do so it again he, sometime. He hits we next time we teach the class. You let me know, and. Uh, so he he talks about vanity. He doesn't hit on some of the other terms. And then uh, right in the middle of the book, Solomon intentionally starts answering different questions. So the question that Solomon answers in the first six chapters is, what profit does a man have? Like, where's my profit? I'm doing all of these things. What did I get from it? It's, a, it's an issue of his personal gain. At the end of chapter six in Ecclesiastes, he switches the question, and I'm going to pull that up and read them. So he, he's not answering the same question for the whole book. The questions at the end of chapter six, this is in verse 12 of chapter six, who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? So really, there's uh, three questions nestled there. Who knows and what is good? And then the who knows or who can tell man what will be after him? So uh, he does kind of hit this, like it's practical ramifications of the sovereignty of God. Who can inform a believer into how they should live? Well, clearly the answer is God, right? Well, Solomon's answer in Ecclesiastes isn't just technically God, it's actually wisdom. And more specifically, Tim, who? Were you after lady wisdom? Lady wisdom. Like chapter seven, 
wisdom tells you this, she tells you this, she tells you this. And then he, at the end of chapter seven, uh, makes this comparison between uh, a folly uh, woman and a wise woman. And uh, we don't need to get into Proverbs one through nine and all of that, but Solomon's shifting his answer to really uh, an exaltation of biblical wisdom, living in the reality God has made, and and understanding how to live in that reality. And so I think Wilson does hit on that. He understands that the content becomes more practical, but he misses the kind of the questions that Solomon asks at the end of chapter six. And so I think he doesn't answer them with as much precision as he could. And so all that to say, I'm, I'm being very critical, but I want to, I want to highlight what he does really well. And so while he doesn't deal with other main theme ideas, I think he very strongly connects the sovereignty of God in Solomon's theology to Solomon's points. And so uh, especially in, this is chapter five in the book, when he gets into chapter three, and he talks about God's perfect timing. And uh, I have uh, a paragraph I'd like to read that I thought was really, really good. So this is on page 43. A time comes to weep, a time comes around when we laugh. Our tears of grief and the occasions of them are from his hand. So is the laughter. He quotes Isaiah 45, I am the Lord and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. When calamity comes and the tears follow, the Lord was in it. When rejoicing hmm. brings relief, the Lord was in it. The doctrine, uh, this doctrine has a hard edge and more than one person has cut himself on it. That's a serrated Ooh. edge, maybe. <clears throat> He's a good writer. He's just a good writer. He is. Uh, so to, that's it. this doctrine has a hard edge, and he's referring to the sovereignty of God. And more than one person has cut himself on it. But denial of the doctrine does not remove the light and darkness, the peace or evil. It just removes the possibility of finding any solace. Oh, and so I think that's good. And that whole chapter, he walks through that whole poem in Ecclesiastes 3. There's a time for this and a time for this. And we we really want God to be the sovereign God over our celebration and our fun and our love and our joy. But then as Solomon learns in Ecclesiastes, well, what about when life is really hard? He's like, what's the point in this? What's the point in this? And Wilson connects chapters one and two to chapters three, four, and five really well. Solomon's connection is that we are tethered to God. Like our enjoyment of the good and the bad is determined by our recognition of his sovereignty and our seeking him to empower us to enjoy all of our lives. And I thought he did that, that chapter. Chapter five in his book, it's called Beautiful in Its Time. I thought that mm. chapter was worth the purchase of the book. Um, mm. A very good reminder for the sovereignty of God. And Tim, what I thought was interesting was the way that he connected chapter three, the poem 
in chapter three to the poem at the beginning of chapter one, where chapter one is the the sun comes up and the sun goes down and hastens back to where it began. You know, the wind blows to the north, the wind blows to the south, and it's going to start all over again. All the water flows down into the sea, but then it returns back to where it began. All things are full of toil. And it's it's very similar in the sense that we're looking at all of these things that happen all of the time. But the difference between the poem in chapter one and the poem in chapter three, and this is Wilson's perspective, is that in chapter one, Solomon is very exasperated with the toil. And he's frustrated that he's not getting what he wants. And then chapter three, now there is a sovereign God. And guess what? Every one of these things happens exactly when it's supposed to. The sun comes up at the right time because God tells it to. And the water flows down to the sea and then the rains come because God told them to. And all Mm -hmm. of my life is full of labor because... God has made my life that way. And Solomon recognizes that, and that is the step towards joy for him. Hmm. And again, I thought that was the best part of that book. I thought he connected the sovereignty of God to Solomon's writing really well. And he, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he missed some of the details that I would have loved for him to not have missed. And so, anyway, I think. It's a, I would, I am going to give it a rating. I'm going to give it a, this is tough. It is tough. (laughs) My initial gut reaction is a six, but I think that's a little too strong because I'm an optimist. Like I'm always a half glass full kind of a guy. (laughs) And so it's probably more like a 4.75 to like a five and a half. Uh, Also, because I just love the book of Ecclesiastes, I think that that changes the way I read it in the sense that I had a lot of background knowledge that helped me read and get things from it. That if you're just like coming in cold turkey, you might not be able to interact with the same discussion. Like when he's talking about the authorship of the book or the the meaning of the word vanity i like i mean tim forced me to write papers on these subjects like i you know i've spent way too much time you know on those things and so i think there's a a threshold of of interaction that i was able to have that maybe just the the casual reader might not be able to uh but that being still said benefit I, from it yeah i still th- and, and and you know i think it's even possible they might get more out of it than I did because I'm not, Mm -hmm. they, they wouldn't be burdened with the, the academic, uh, critique, you know, they're not gonna, Oh, well he missed this little idea in the middle of chapter six, you know? Um, and so I think as a devotional tool, not as a Bible study tool, I would highly recommend this book to you, Mm -hmm. uh, with the caveats I made earlier that he's a very bold person with theology you might not want to adopt. So, uh, anyway, what, what do you guys think about that? I mean, any of the ideas there <clears throat> jump out or any thoughts you have or questions of the book? I think for me, I'm, I love the book of Ecclesiastes, but I don't know as well as you guys, but it had always been one of my favorite books. Um, I really liked the way he said his argument in the paragraph that you read. I thought that was masterful because mm-hmm. 
Um, it's interesting in apologetics, um, a lot of naturalists try to create a world where, well, they try to explain a world without God. Um, and in that world, they want freedom. But in the end, all they get is robotic determination based on environmental cues, like environmental causes. So it's funny, like the thing they grab for so much, when they get it the way they want it, they actually lose it. And Wilson was saying, like, you can you can try to find some way to move away God's sovereignty, but the only thing you get in that quote you said was, you know, a meaningless world. Whereas if you submit to this doctrine, then you actually have hope that there's meaning behind it. I thought that was a really good way. It even reminded me of the book of Job, where Job never finds out why all this calamity has befallen him. But because he trusts the person who created the universe, who speaks to him at the end of the book, he can he can say, oh, wow. Anyway, it's just and in my own situation right now in life with uh, walking the path of cancer again. I'm thinking, yeah, that's that's literally the hope you cling to. Like, you don't know why, but you, you trust the one who is doing it. I, I like that paragraph a lot. I thought that was really good. I do have one other paragraph I'd like to read before I turn it over for the devotional. Tim, do you have any comments or thoughts? No, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a nice popular level book and, you know, I'd recommend it. I don't know. I don't think his theology, his bad theology comes through a whole lot in that one, but I read it a long time ago as well. So it's a gateway drug. <laughs> I might add one thing. It is interesting. I, and this is maybe a side topic, so I don't know that I want to open this can of worms, but that's what we do on this podcast. So I think when it comes to a book and we're ranking it, I was going to ask you, Charlie, but then you kind of ranked it with a caveat anyways. <laughs> if you're ranking a book where you have to heavily give caveats before you recommend it, does that affect your ranking? And I was just thinking about that myself. What if there was a book I really, really liked, but then when I recommend it, I have to stop and give you know, 15 caveats that are all basically centered around discernment and theology. It's just an interesting thought. I don't know if we want to talk about that now, but... Um, I yeah. like Wilson. I'm with you both. I like him, but I just don't know how much I can freely say, go read Wilson just because of what's going on with the, the Christian nationalism, the theonomy. There's also some sort of a, some sort of a controversy going on in his church and like about cover-ups with some sort of a abuse issue. And I just yeah. don't know what to make of all that. And I'm, I want to be careful not to promote something like that if I don't know anything about it, but I'm, but I'm with you though. Like a lot of his stuff has really helped me. Well, you know, the author of a book doesn't matter, right? The author is dead. Oh, you can just find meaning wherever you want. Um, so as a very alive Wilson comes and hunts you down. I'll make two comments. I'll read my quote and then we'll, we'll finish with, with God's word. Yeah, so comment good. number one, if Jeff Newman had written this book, I'd give it a 10. I That's absolutely right. lowered the score because of who he was. Okay. Okay, so that yeah. helps us to understand the content value. And right here's why. And here's why. Uh, we mentioned this a few weeks ago that a very good writer is the most dangerous one because of how smooth and crafty he is in his writing. And I don't mean that to mean like he's trying to deceive people at all, but he is a good writer, and I think he intentionally tries to be very pithy and readable and quotable. I think because of that writing skill that he has, 
you do have to be on a, a higher alert system because you he could very easily smuggle something to you. And lest we think that's a bad thing, this is what the Inklings did with Christian theology in their fiction writings. <laughs> I mean, I think it's hilarious that Lord of the Rings takes on this like otherworldly presence in modern day. And it's like, and, and he's not, he's not, you know, trying to teach Christian theology, but it is a, it has elements of a Christian worldview all over it. All and, over it. You know, it's in Lewis all would talk it. about all these Christian authors smuggling things to him and he didn't even realize it. Like I was reading McDonald and I had no idea what he was doing to me. And, uh, mm -hmm. yep. you know, so, and I think, so we just need to be careful of that, uh, as you read him. But so I think that answers your question. Here's the last quote I'd like to read. And again, this is from what I think is the strongest part of this book. It's chapter five, um, beautiful in its time, but this is page 40. So a couple pages before that previous quote, and this one might be a little bit longer, but it's really good. The basis for this joy is the principle of divine sovereignty. Now the days of our lives are in the hands of God. The first verse here says that there is a time and a season for everything under heaven. So who apportions these times and seasons? All these tasks which follow are God-given. He makes everything beautiful in its time. God's inscrutable actions are forever. If it is good, then God gave it. If it is travail, then God gave it also. In short, he is the one who apportions our lot and that's the word for portion, which kind of gets to. He apportions our lot, and when he has done it, it is forever. When looked at from our vantage under the sun, everything, including the ebb and the flow, is vanity. But when we remember that God has placed all things where they now are, everything, including the ebb and flow, is beautiful. A careful reader looks ahead to verse 14. God does all this that men should fear him. A man who reads without trembling has forgotten the living God. Mm. And uh, I, I just mm. thought that captured, mm. I think, the nugget of that book right there on pages 40 and 41. So, Doug Wilson, Joy at the End of the Tether, five and a quarter on the Thinkling's Goodness Scale. And now let's have a final thought from God's Word. Let's uh, have a final thought, though, with an unmuted microphone, Tim. Genesis 15, <laughs> 1 reads, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And uh, this, this passage, this new section in the Bible, uh, begins with the phrase, After these things which of course should cause us to pause and to consider, well, what was before? What happened before was the, the, the fall of the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah um, and how the kings of the east came and conquered them. Then Abram went and fought with his men and liberated Lot, uh, retrieving the possessions of the king of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then uh, refusing to accept the possessions of the king of Sodom and Gomorrah. These are important components 
because in verse 1 it states, Do not be afraid, Abram. Now, if you just went and fought a battle with five mighty kings from the east, what might you fear? The, the retribution of those kings of the east coming after me. Exactly. So do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. <clears throat> that is a military oh. metaphor. And that same word for shield is used in Genesis 14, where God states that he will protect him. Then it states, your exceedingly great reward. The word reward is the same word for uh, reward, possessions, the wealth that Abram could have acquired and was rightly, was rightly um, justified in acquiring as a result of the battle. So according to the you know, ancient Near Eastern world, Abram went, conquered the five kings. So then he gets the plunder. That's the way that things worked. However, he, he, you know, some of his men took some stuff and then he gave some of it to Melchizedek, but then he refused to take anything else. The point of uh, Genesis 14, I don't know about point, but at least one aspect of Genesis 14 and then into Genesis 15 concerns possessions. So when, G when God states your exceedingly great reward, God is going to reward Abram uh, for his faithfulness to the Lord. It states then in verse 2, but Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. When you consider uh, the ancient Near Eastern world, their focus on the patrilineal line, Abram is saying, hey, guess what, God? I can have all the wealth in the world, but if I don't have a son, I'm not going to have anybody to pass it on to. In fact, my current in person that's going to inherit all of this wealth that you've given me isn't even one of my own descendants. This focus on the patrilineal um, uh, descendants in the Old Testament is a major component of a paper that I'm working on right now. And um, that's one of the things that's driven me to Genesis 15, particularly with Abram's faith and his focus on God, even in the midst of not being able to have a descendant. When you think through the ancient Near Eastern world, well, the ancient world period, polygamy was a regular affair. Everybody had multiple wives. And if you had a wife that did not conceive, what would you do? You had another wife. We see it frequently. Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Penina. Hannah could not have children. So what did he do? He went and married Penina. I believe there's an underlying theological theme here that even Abram teaches the ancient man, which was the design. God's design for marriage was a man and a woman. Now, Abram kind of messes that up in the next chapter, but right now he's a very, very old man and he continues to simply have one wife who is infertile. And he, uh, he speaks to God and he, and he says, Lord, I'm childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. That's what he states in verse 3. And then what does, how does God respond in verse 4? And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. 
so what does God promise him? God promises him, you know what? It will be a son. You will have a son that comes from you and that one will be your heir. This was an amazing promise that God gave to Abram. It was completely illogical from an ancient world perspective. It was impossible, which is why, you know, they kind of messed things up in chapter 16 because they figured, hey, let's get another girl involved. But anyway, before that happened, okay, God promises this one, you will have your own heir and he will be the one to inherit all of these possessions. God then promises Abraham this. In verse five, I'm going to just keep reading, states, then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. So then God gives him a picture, an illustration of that. Look at the stars in the heaven. And I wish we could actually visualize and see all the stars in our day and age. We have so much white light everywhere. It's very difficult for us to actually visually see the number of the stars. But there are countless stars. And I'm sure you've heard that in multiple different sources. But the key verse here in Genesis 15 is the very next verse. How does Abram reply? How does he respond to God's promise that a descendant will come from himself? It states in Genesis 15, 6, and he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. God is the God that does things that are illogical, that are impossible. And how do we need to respond when God says what he's going to do? We need to trust him. We need to believe him. Who is this God? This God that we serve is the one that brought Abram out from the land of the Chaldeans to give him a land that he did not possess yet. He owned none of the land in which he walked. But God promised that he would have that land. And just as God provided a descendant, Isaac, to Abram, and just as God fulfilled his promise to Abram 400 some years later, through the children of Israel coming into the promised land. This is the same God that you and I serve. And what do we need to do? We need to believe in him. We need to trust him. So I don't know what challenge, what difficulty you might be going through today, but I want just to encourage you that God is God. He's in control. He is sovereign over whatever the problem is in your situation. And I want to encourage you to trust him. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast. The Thinklings want to remind our listeners that the Thinklings podcast is our personal production. Our conversations, book discussions, and viewpoints may not represent the views of Faith Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary. Any questions or feedback should be directed to us at the Thinklings podcast.